Why do we make such a big deal about Easter? It's a big deal. Why do we make such a big deal about it? I really enjoyed making a big deal about Easter all my life. I have old pictures that I can find. When I was a little boy, I was very handsome when I was young, and I had a little cardigan on, and I had a little bow tie on, and I was standing next to my equally handsome dad in front of his Plymouth, and it was Easter Sunday, and there that picture is. My parents were making a big deal out of Easter. And then after I married Lois, we had a boy first, and that was great. And then when Holly came along, our first daughter, and she got big enough to dress up for Easter, Lois made her an Easter outfit like you can't believe. It was frill and lace and pink and white and pantaloons and pinafore. It's amazing. It was so beautiful that she dressed her all up, made her herself, dressed her all up, gave her to me to take her to church, and I, I didn't get to, I hadn't really thought about it until I got there. I thought, this is just going to be embarrassing bringing this girl in church. She's so beautiful. It was embarrassing. I'm not kidding. So I, I took her hand. I remember that day walking into church thinking, this is embarrassing. She's so beautiful. That's what I thought. And then I got to thinking about you guys and all the little girls, all the little guys in our church and you and what a big deal we make about Easter. It's a delightful thing when mom's young and old and dad's young and old understand that Easter matters. There's something to it. In the Easter story, the story of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we never get tired about, of singing about it. We never get tired of thinking about it. We never get tired of talking about it. It's not just a, an excuse for dinner at grandma's, as wonderful as that is. It's the pivot of the Christian faith. It's the foundation of the Christian faith. It's the heart of what it means to be Christian. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've always said it like this to people who are struggling with belief. I would say take all the things that you wonder about and all the questions that you have about the Bible, about the miracles of the Bible, about all the things that you might find kind of hard to understand and put them all like in one place, in a funnel, if you will. And at the mouth of that funnel is the person of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then all the things that he said were true in the Bible are true. And if Jesus is not who he said he was, then we don't know about any of the things in the Bible. And if you want to determine the one thing to decide if Jesus is who he said he was, if Jesus rose from the dead like he said he was going to do ahead of time, then he is who he said he was. The Bible and everything is it is in it is true. You see the resurrection is the pivot of the Christian faith. It's the fountain of Christian vitality. It's the foundation of Christian thinking. Christianity isn't just another ethic or a way to live. It's that, but it's so much more. It's based on the truth in real time and real space that God came to the world, this broken world that was broken by the fall or by sin or by the sin curse that started in the garden when God created Adam and Eve and he created the world and Adam and Eve and put them in the garden and they decided to do their own thing, go their own way, make things that are good, ultimate things, and really they had a problem with idolatry. Instead of obeying the Lord, they did what they wanted to do. In the Bible, it's called sin. And, the, and, and what the Bible says is that was the fall. That's when the earth began to kind of implode, kind of cave in on itself. Now you think, well, I wasn't there. I can't verify that. But you can 
look around and you can see that you live in a world that's not quite running the way it was supposed to run. It's a broken world that we live in. And we live in a broken world because the story that you can read from the beginning of the Bible is true. God designed the world in perfection, and yet it was broken, and he's gone about redeeming or buying back the world and reclaiming the world and rebuilding the world, you know. And he did that through his son Jesus, God himself, who came in human form, lived a life that was perfect without sin, in order that he would die on the cross to pay for the sins of the world, he would be buried, and to prove that he was God, and to prove that God accepted the sacrifice or the payment of Jesus on the cross, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a big deal. But what if that hadn't happened? I think about, I was thinking about you this week a lot. If you are going to talk to people, you should think a lot about who you're going to talk to. And I thought about what's going to be going through your mind and what are you going to be thinking about and what kind of aspirations and dreams and goals and problems and stuff that bothers you and so what's going on in your life. Things that are generally true about people, I'm sure, are true about you. And three, of, three big things that I, I want to mention today are, are true about all people, especially when you get a few years on you. When you're young, you may not think too much about this. But, but three things. And I, and I need you to bring me the, the advancers that we have so the slides can show. All right? Three things. Think about this. Think about big problems that people have. Guilt or shame is one. Guilt is a big human problem. Guilt or hurt, there. The, the brevity of life, death, the brevity of life. Prop, you agree with this? Feel guilty about things that I've done that are wrong. I never have enough time to do everything I want to do. If you're old, it's like an old Jim Croce song. Yeah. Time in a bottle. All the old people go, amen, pastor. All the young people go, like, what? What's he talking about? I have no idea. It's like you never have enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. Old timers, remember when Jimmy Croce would sing that? You'd just go, ah, that's so true. And then he died young, didn't he? It's a problem. Guilt is a problem. Sin, right? The brevity of life, death is a problem. And just plain old emptiness. Like Emptiness meaningless uh, philosophers call it existential angst like why am i here what am i doing and and poets even talk about i i don't know only probably a small portion of you will appreciate this little poem by billy collins billy collins has an interesting sense of humor you'd have to meet him to appreciate it thank you very much and he's talking about death and he's talking about his parents who died. And they're in the graveyard in the cemetery. And he's in too big of a rush to go visit them. And so he beeps his horn as he drives by the cemetery on the way by. And he writes a cute little bit of doggerel about that. And it really is interesting because even in poetry you can see the problems. Guilt, <laughs> the brevity of life, emptiness. Here's the poem. You want to hear it? Okay, I'll read it to you. In a rush this morning, this weekday morning, I tap the horn as I speed past the cemetery where my parents are buried side by side beneath a smooth slab of granite. Then all day, I think about my dad rising up to give me that look of knowing disapproval while my mother calmly says to him, lie back down. 
look around. If the people, the people that laughed at that, those are sophisticated and intellectual people that get stuff like that. The ones that were going, huh? They, yeah, they're, they're not. But we're glad you're here anyway. And we do, and, and we're really grateful because you take your Bibles and open it. If you have your Bible, if you open it first, uh, Corinthians 15. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's one there in the pew right ahead of you. You can look it up there, the table of contents. Just look up 1 Corinthians, and then chapter 15. And if you don't really want to do that, you can just look at the slides, because I'm going to show you the essence of it here on these slides. And we're talking here about sin and death and emptiness and the resurrection of Jesus. And a book that we're looking at is a, is a letter that's written to a church, a, a group of Jesus followers. And uh, they weren't perfect. They were, kind of, they were like all churches, a little, you know, little good, a little bad, a little messed up, a little broken. Um, and they had people that believed things that were true, and they had some people that believed things that, that weren't particularly true. Paul is an apostle. Paul's the guy who wrote the letter. So he's writing a letter to a group of Christians, and um, he himself came to faith and to follow Jesus Christ later in life. He was a skeptic. He was an unbeliever. He was actually a Pharisee, and he persecuted the church even unto death. So we had this guilt on his heart. And then he met Jesus in an unusual post-resurrection appearance on the road to Damascus in like blinding light. So unlike the other apostles or disciples that met Jesus after he died and rose again, Paul met him in a kind of unique and miraculous personal view, if you will. He's writing this letter, and in the letter, he, he, he writes about what would it be like if Jesus hadn't rose from the dead? What would it be like in the world if Jesus hadn't rose from the dead? And the reason he's saying that is because there were a little pocket of people in the church that were saying, I don't think there is a resurrection. I don't think there is life after life. Like a handful of people that you know might believe, I just think you're worm food when you die. It's just over, you know, it's just over. And there's nothing after that. And there were a few people who felt that way. Paul's saying, that's not true. That's not true, and that's kind of where we're going, kind of jumping into this, if you will. But I'll read that, but, but to set it up, let me read you from 1 Corinthians 15. This is the part, you know, our church's name is Evangel. It means good tidings, good news, uh, and, and it comes from this, from like passages like this. Gospel is the word you often hear. It means good news, and the good news is the story that I just told, that the world was broken because of sin, that God sent his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to come and live a sinless life, to die, to pay for the sins of the world, and to prove that he received that payment and that Jesus is who he said he was, he died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. Now our job is to tell other people that story, and that's why Easter is a big deal. So here's a story from 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are, are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died for your sins and rose again, you become a follower of Jesus, and your sins are forgiven, and the proof that you really are a Christian is that you continue, you follow through on that. That's what Paul is saying, unless you believed in vain, unless you're a person that just kind of said words you didn't mean, right? So that's what he's saying. And then he says, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, and that the Scriptures predicted it, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then after that, he was seen. He was seen by Cephas, another name for Peter, and then by the Twelve, and after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, 
of whom the greater part remain to the present. And some have fallen asleep. This was his post-resurrection appearance up in Galilee. 500 people saw him alive, many of whom were still alive at the time that Paul wrote this. And then Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. When you get down to verse 12, he says, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And then what he's going to do is he's going to show you six different things that would be true if Christ had not been risen. And here they are in the following verses. If Jesus Christ is not risen, preaching, he says, my preaching is vain, empty, worthless. He says, if Jesus Christ is not risen, your faith is also vain, empty, worthless. Like it's a, crazy, it's a game. And then, and then you, you've, you're, we are found to be false witnesses. Paul says, I was a witness that I saw Jesus alive. If he's not alive, I'm a false witness. And then you're still in your sins. Verse 17 says that. And those who have fallen asleep, a euphemism for death, people that you knew that were trusting God when they died, they're just dead. And there's no life after life. If Jesus isn't alive, they're not alive and then he ends with this powerful statement, and we are of all men, you are of all men most pitiable to be pitied. Like you are kidding yourself. You're, that's crazy. And you have it. Go through that list again. What if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead? Six things. One, building churches, sending missionaries, that'd be a waste of time, a waste of money, wouldn't it? If Jesus isn't alive, why would you build churches why would you send missionaries? It, it, wouldn't, it would be worthless. It would be a waste of time. Second, Christianity would be the cruelest of hoaxes, wouldn't it? Everybody depending on that and believing on that. It would just be a cruel hoax. If Jesus is still dead, if he was crucified and didn't rise from the dead, then building churches and sending missionaries is a waste of time. Then Christianity is a cruel hoax. Third, preachers are professional deceivers. Yeah. And missionaries, missionary martyrs, they've just wasted their lives, that's all. Isn't that interesting? We, he says in verse 15 there, are found false witnesses. Ministry would have no real credibility. If Jesus isn't alive, then what I'm doing is right now is kind of like big time wrestling. You probably didn't know this, but my wife still thinks that big time wrestling is real. I tell him. Her, her grandmother lived down in Kentucky. She thought the moonwalk was fake and big-time wrestling was real. <laughs> That's not true, though. I, what I'm doing is like big-time wrestling. If Jesus isn't alive, it's just like a, it's sort of a carnival show, sort of a game, kind of like shell game where you're trying to make people feel good about stuff that isn't true. That's what Paul is saying. Fourth, there's no escape. And this is, look at verse 17 there. There's no escape from guilt. There's no escape from shame. There's no answer for that problem that all of us know is true, that the world is a broken place, and I'm a broken person, and I live among broken people. And there's no answer. There's no hope for that if Jesus is still dead. And then, fifth, eternity is a dark question mark. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Mark Twain wasn't a believer. And shortly before he died, here's how he expressed it. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age then creeps upon them. Infirmities follow, and those they love are taken from them. The joy of life is turned to aching grief. And then when death comes, it's a release. 
It's the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And then they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. It's a world which will lament them from a day and then forget them forever. If Jesus is still dead, then he was right about that. And then sixth, verse 19, we are of all men most to be pitied or most miserable. Christians are the most deluded people on earth wasting their time and if Jesus is still dead. Around 1900, a man wrote a book, became a bestseller. His name was Guy uh, Thorne. And this book was called uh, When It Was Dark. And here was the plot line of the book. The plot line of the book was, it was fiction, of course, the plot line of the book was that, 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 a, that a wealthy man in the Middle East paid someone to fake the discovery of the body of Jesus Christ. And they, they went to a great deal of uh, trouble in the book to create this very believable hoax that Jesus isn't really alive, but that they found his body. And then in the book, the way the plot goes is when the word got out that Jesus was still dead, that Jesus died and didn't rise again, and the word got out and it went around the world, and people then began to believe that Jesus was dead, who used to believe that Jesus was alive, the world turned dark. All over the world, churches closed, and institutions and organizations that were based on Christianity folded in upon themselves, and the world became a dark place with vile sin and lust. I'm glad it was a novel. That's what would happen if Jesus Christ wasn't alive. And think about these things. Keep them in your mind. Sin, death, and emptiness. Sin, death, and emptiness, because This text that we're looking at today about the resurrection, which is one of the finest resurrection texts of the Bible, when you really think about it, like you you look at this passage and you think, okay, so what does this have to do with me? Well, what it has to do with you is this. You have to deal with the problem of sin and guilt. You just do. If nothing else, the people you live around are sinners. And, And you might be too, right? Right? Yeah. You have to deal with that. There's gotta be an answer for that. That sense that you have that you've done things that are wrong that you're chargeable for things that are wrong. And then there's that matter of the brevity of life or time or death. Once you're young, you may not think about that, but you won't have to be very old before you really do start thinking about that. One of these days, you won't show up for Easter church, and it won't be because you had something better to do. And your friends and family will think about you on that day. Remember last year, he was with us. That's just true. And there's that whole thing of, what is the meaning of life? Does my life really matter? How can you go on if your life doesn't really matter? But verse 20 says this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, Paul says, But put that dark thought behind you. Jesus did rise from the dead. I saw him, and he not only rose from the dead, but when he rose from the dead, he was just the first fruits. Now to us, that doesn't mean that much. But first fruits means this is just an example of the wonderful crop that's going to come. Jesus rose from the dead, and many, 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 many others are going to rise from the dead because he rose from the dead. This is what the scriptures teach. How do we know that? Well, Paul knew it because he was an eyewitness of it. Because he saw Jesus. That would be very, very convincing. If you take the book of Acts, which is like the historic uh, story written by Luke of the first years of the church, 
all that the book of Acts is, is people that were convinced of the resurrection, especially those who saw it, apostles, just went around the known world telling the story. And their message was very singular. It wasn't like, well, we're going to tell you about how to wash your car, or we're going to tell you about how to get along with your mother-in-law, or we're going to tell you how to you get, a, get a, a, a raise, or how to get a better job, like a lot of modern preaching is kind of empty like that. Not apostolic preaching. Apostolic preaching was very singular. It's kind of like gospel music. You sing about heaven, right? You sing about the gospel. You think about the cross. Isn't that that way it is? So it is with apostolic preaching. They just came into town and they said, hey, guess what we're going to preach on today? They're going to preach on what they always preach on. They're going to preach on the resurrection. If you saw Jesus Christ alive again after his torture and death, you would never stop talking about it. You would be a witness. And as you're a witness then, Jesus' following groups sprung up around the known world and have literally spread around the world. Paul was convinced not by books of evidences, but because he was a witness. Isn't that great? You're thinking, well, how can I know that? And some of you here today, you know, maybe you're not convinced. It's so clear. I'm glad you're here. We, we kid about, you know, you coming on Easter. I appreciate it. You heard about the guy that would, wouldn't go to church with his wife except, you know, on Easter. And he's driving home, and she goes, you know, you ought to come back next week. And he goes, I'm not going to come back next week. And she says, oh, come on, honey, you ought to. Just give me a good reason you're not going to come back next week. And she goes, the guy, every time I come, that guy preaches the same message. And she says, that's because you only come on Easter. Just, you know, just a thought. But anyway, so, so there is this, this evidence, and, and, uh, and, there, and there, are, there, there are thousands and thousands of pieces of evidence to validate the claims of the Bible. There's manuscript evidence, there's extant manuscript fragments that agree together, there's documents and studies that have been done on those, there's the validation of history and archaeology. We could go on and on and we could talk for hours and hours about evidence, it's called apologetics. But then there's another way, you could study the evidence, and I challenge you, just for fun, go ahead, study the evidence. But there's another way, and I think it's the best way, there's evidence and then there's experience. And they say that a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. It's a little bit like my wife and I, Lois and I, we're married. Do you believe us? Yeah? We're married. Do you believe that? Yeah, okay. Okay, and you would never convince me I'm not married. Maybe like, let's just say I say, hey, I'm not sure I'm married. And you go, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll see if we can find those wedding pictures, those yellow wedding pictures from long ago and far away. Or, or, or wait, wait, I think if we, if we look, we can find that wedding certificate. And we'll show you. Look, see, right there, you guys signed that. You, you, you know, over there in Ypsilanti in September 1979, back in the olden days, you were married. Remember that? But wouldn't it be a lot better if I could just, like, go out to dinner with Lois? She would reach across the table when we prayed to hold my hand. And then we talked about all the wonderful times we had together and the children that God gave us. Be, would you, wouldn't you say evident? Wouldn't you say it would be better to have experience than evidence? Right? They say there's a restaurant up in Clark's, Clarkston. It's called the Union Wood Shop. Anybody ever been there? All right, yeah. See that hand back there? Yeah. Restaurant called the Union Wood Shop. I was read about it. I saw it on TV one day. They have barbecue. This looks so completely like I need to go to that place. And they have macaroni and cheese, and they have um, iced tea, sweet tea, and big jars. Just, and they, they have a big line on the weekends, a huge line. They say it goes way down the street, the Union Wood Shop. It just sounds cool. 
barbecue. <laughs> if I keep talking, some of you are going to leave while I'm talking. But wouldn't it be cool to go there? I've always thought, I'm going to go there someday. I'm going to see if that brisket is as good as they talk about. Well, if I said, well, I'm not even sure it really exists. And you said, no, no, it exists. I've been there. Dave Fuse has been there. I believe Dave's credible witness. It's as good as they say. <laughs> what if Dave goes, oh, really? does it really exist? And Dave goes, yeah, it really exists. I've been there. I'm like, really? Yeah. I, I, I doubt it. He's like, well, here's a, here's a menu. They have a website. Are you calling my wife a liar? I would, I would, you know, I'd say, I just doubt it, Dave. I just don't, I just doubt it. And then what if Dave said, get in the car? I'm like, okay, now we're talking. Yeah? And we drive there, and we order the biscuit, and we eat it on the way home. I'm a believer. Because I experienced it. And it, that might sound silly, but the Bible has a message that is self-authenticating. If you're sitting here and you're going, I just, I want to believe that's true. That's a beautiful story, but how can I believe it's true? It's like, taste it, see it. That's what Jesus said. And then what he will do is he says he will spiritually enlighten you and your eyes will be open. Do you want that to be true? Does something in your heart say, I need to be free from my guilt and I need to be free from this fear of death and I want to have meaning and purpose in life? Well, then read that book and read that story and God the Holy Spirit will do his part. He'll open your heart. He'll enlighten your eyes and you will know that you know that it's true because you experienced it. Now, But, but my favorite proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is the church itself. Like on a day like this, you always feel that. My, my favorite proof of the resurrection is the church of Jesus Christ. It's, it's Christians that through the years have always gathered in loyalty to him. And it may look like it, but it's not a franchise. I mean, we could get in the car, to, and we could go to Maine, the craggy coast of Maine, and we could find ourselves a little white clabbered church in Maine, and we would be, park our car outside this morning and look, and we would see little worshipers, wouldn't we? families and little girls in, in bonnets and so forth, and, and they're going to church. And, and when we go in there, it's likely that that guy's going to talk about what? The resurrection. What is there? Some kind of a franchise here that everybody has like a quality control program? And it's like, here's your sermon for the day. You must preach the sermon. Now, I realize that Christianity has been corrupted, and I realize that there are people who call themselves Christians that aren't very Christian. I understand that. But it is an amazing thing that all, around, all across time and all around the nation and all throughout the world are millions of people who call Jesus Lord and who build their lives on what Jesus said. The vitality of the Christian church itself is one of the most powerful arguments that I have ever seen that Jesus Christ really did come back from the dead. And the resilience of the church, it's amazing when you think about it. The church has flourished in areas where the church is persecuted, even today, in Kenya. Christians, they came in, the Muslim uh, uh, militants came into this college just last week in Kenya, and they literally separated Muslims from Christians. And then if you said that you were Muslim and they weren't sure, they would have you quote the Koran. And if you, would, you couldn't, you would be, that'd be like a Bible memory program there, wouldn't it? Huh? They were moved over to the side, and 150 of them were murdered there. And that's just one story. We'll, we'll, we'll hear another story next week and an, another story the week after that. The church is being persecuted more now than ever in the history of the world. And yet, it always has been persecuted, and yet it still flourishes. Can you explain that to me? And you say, well, wait a minute. There are other great religions of the world. There are large religions. Yes, but have you noticed the character of those religions? Have you noticed the character of those religions? Bible Christianity... It's benevolent, it's kind, it's loving. 
It's forgiving. Jesus said, love your enemy and do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them. And followers of Jesus, by the millions, do that. By the millions, they're kind and giving and benevolent. They're involved in education and philanthropy and kindness and kind deeds along with the gospel message. The character of the Christian church, the vitality of the Christian church, the resilience of the Christian church. It's an amazing argument that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. And he has millions of followers and I am among them. Yes, Christ rose from the dead. Let's go back through our list. Again, back to verse 14, and notice, number one, then our preaching is empty. No, if Jesus Christ is alive, preaching is anything but empty. It's the most important thing in the world. The message of Christ is the hope of the world. Second, verse 14, your faith is vain. But no, if Christ is alive, your faith is meaningful. Your life is meaningful. Preaching matters, and life matters. Followers of Christ then have rooted their lives in ultimate eternal truth. You wonder what's true. This is true. Jesus is alive. Three, followers of Christ are stewards of a priceless message. Verse 15, he says, if Jesus is dead, we're false witnesses. But if Jesus is alive, then I've just been given the most powerful and transformational mission and message in the world. You get to go to work tomorrow. You get to go to school tomorrow. And you get to love on people that if you get this message by the Holy Spirit's help planted in their heart, it will transform them and their lives for generations. That's amazing. It matters. Tom Little went to Afghanistan. Tom Little actually recruited nine other people to go to Afghanistan with him. He was a a medical doctor, and he put together a team. They discovered that there was a way that they could take little children in Afghanistan who had a special certain kind of blindness, and they could literally reverse that total blindness to perfect uh, sight. Can you imagine being able to do that? They would go to these villages, and many of these impoverished villages, and then if people trusted them, they would perform this procedure, and a child that could not see before would be able to see perfectly when they left. If you could do that, wouldn't you feel like your life so mattered? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you feel like you had purpose? And yet it's no different than that. It's even greater when we, when we have the gospel. Because eventually our eyes will close in death. But if we have eternal life, if you can go to people and explain to them how they can be free of guilt and free of death and free of emptiness through Jesus Christ, what a powerful thing. Tom Little and his friends were all Martyred. They were all murdered in Afghanistan a few years ago. The, the Western press barely said a word about it, but Jesus Christ noticed it, and they're with the Lord right now in heaven. Jesus Christ is alive, and the message of Christ is the hope of the world, and the followers of Christ have rooted our lives in ultimate eternal truth, and followers of Christ are stewards of a priceless message, and followers of Christ are free forever from guilt, the guilt and shame of sin. See that? Verse 17, we are still in our sins, but not if Christ is alive. Think about that. And then followers of Christ have absolute confidence of eternal life. They which have fallen asleep or died in Jesus are perished, but not if Christ is alive. If Christ is alive, we can be alive after we die. The the promise of eternal life, that those who knew the Lord, when they die, that those who die when they know the Lord, that we'll meet them again. It's a promise of the Bible. Sheldon Van Auken, if I've been your I've been in, I'm in my eighth year here, and over and over again I've said to you, read Sheldon Van Auken's book, A Severe Mercy. All the good children have done that now, right? 
but you go, well, Pastor, you talk about it so much, I don't need to read it. Yeah, okay. Can I tell you a story? Sheldon Van Auken was an unbeliever. He's raised in Indiana, studied, met a girl. Her name was Jean Davis. He called her Davy. Their story is beautiful. It's a beautiful love story. And they travel across the ocean. They go to Oxford to study. They're unbelievers. They're, they call themselves happy pagans. They're bright. They're young. They're beautiful. They're in love. Their lives are good. His dad was wealthy. He left them with some money. She's the kind of girl that really didn't feel like she needed money. They just were pretty happy people, and they, were, they had a very unique and beautiful love relationship. It wasn't like they were walking around going, you know, I'm burdened with guilt. Uh, it wasn't like they were walking around going, I think I'm going to die, because they didn't think they were going to die. They were young people. But when they went to Oxford, they bumped into a guy, uh, and his friend, a fellow whose name was uh, Clive Staples Lewis. They called him Jack C.S. Lewis. They would have conversations in the night, you know, in the evening, and they would get together, and they would have these conversations. Shel Van Aken said, late in the evening, the conversation would always turn to ultimate things. It would turn to eternal things. They would start talking about God and heaven and hell and death and Christ and Christianity. And then C.S. Lewis introduced them to his friends, which were completely unlike what they thought Christian people would be like. They were bright, they were caring, they were loving, they were interesting. Van and Davy, Sheldon Van Aken and Gene Davis got saved. They became followers of Jesus Christ. And not too long after that, she contracted a, a, uh, an illness and she died in her youth. I'm not ruining the book. They say that at the beginning. Sheldon Van Aken goes back to England and he meets with C.S. Lewis one more time. He would never see him again. And in his book, A Severe Mercy, he writes about the last day. They went to a little restaurant and they ate together. And here's what he said. On that last day, I met C.S. Lewis at Eastgate for lunch. We talked, I recall, about death, or rather, awakening after death. Whatever would it be like, we thought. Our response to it would be, why, of course. Of course it would be like this. How else could it have possibly been? And we both chuckled at that thought, what it would be like to awaken after death. I said that it would be sort of like coming home, and Lewis agreed with me. Lewis said that he hoped that Davy and I would be coming back to England soon. We mustn't get out of touch. At all events, he said, with a cheerful grin, we'll certainly meet again, either here or there. Then it was time to go. And when we emerged onto the busy highway, with all traffic streaming past, we shook hands, and he said, I shan't say goodbye because I'm sure we will meet again. And then he plunged into traffic, and I stood there watching him. And when he reached the pavement on the other side, he turned around as though he knew somehow that I would still be standing there in front of the east gate. And he raised his voice in a great roar that easily overcame the noise of the cars and buses. And heads turned, and at least one car swerved. Besides, he bellowed with a grin, Christians never say goodbye. Johnny Erickson, you know who she is. Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a young girl. She was in a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. And she's a radiant Christian, a tremendous Christian communicator. She, her, her, her mother-in-law wanted to do her a favor. They live in California. Her mother-in-law wanted to do her a favor. Her mother-in-law said, I know you're probably not going to like this, but her husband's name is Ken. So I, want, I, I decided that I want to give you and Ken a gift, and it's kind of odd, but, you know, eventually we all have to die, and, and, and I want us to be near one another when we do, and so I have bought you guys a place in a cemetery, and they were a little uncomfortable with that, but they said, well, that was a nice gesture, thank you, 
He said, there's only one problem. She said, uh, Johnny's mother-in-law said, you have to come see it and sign the papers because that's part of the rule. You have to agree. And she said, well, that's really distasteful, but I'll go. And she didn't really like it very much. Neither of them really liked it very much, you know, go visit their cemetery plot after all. It was a beautiful day when they got there, and uh, Johnny says, go ahead and take care of the paperwork. I'm going to power up my wheelchair. I'm going to go out to the spot in Whispering Pines, a little plot of ground where they're going to put my broken body when I die. And she wasn't in a very good mood. Her little wheelchair went out there, and she looked at the spot on the ground for a minute. It was depressing. Then she turned it around, and she looked out over the mountainscape, and the wind really was blowing in the pines, and it moved her hair, and suddenly it came to her, because I know the Lord, this isn't my burial plot. (laughs) This is the spot on earth where I will soar to meet Jesus in perfect health. This is my launching pad. That's the way it is when you know the Lord. Everything about your life is different. Everything about your life has changed. No more guilt. No more death is not eternal. (laughs) And no more emptiness. I pastored a church in Ohio years ago. We had a tradition there. It was a beautiful tradition. No, I'm sorry. That was in Fremont. It was in Michigan. It was a beautiful tradition, though. And the people in the church... They had these Easter lilies, and the, the church didn't buy them. The people bought them. And what you would do is if you wanted to have a memorial for a person that you loved that died, that knew the Lord, you would buy an Easter lily the week before Easter. You'd bring it to the church. And then you would fill out this little card. On the card, you would put the name of the loved one that had gone to be with the Lord that you are going to see again because Christ is alive. And then they would take those lilies with the little cards and they'd, they'd put them out on the, it's just the whole platform at the church would be full of those lilies. This church secretary would go out, Irma Murphy. She would go out the week before. I was a new pastor. I didn't really understand the tradition. She walked me through it. And she went out and she gathered up all those cards and she came and sat across my desk. And she put the cards on the desk and she started to say the names of the people. And she started telling me their stories because Irma had been in the church for 300 years. <laughs> so there she was telling me those stories. And now Sunday on Easter, I'm going to stand up in the middle of the service and everybody's going to get really quiet. And I'm going to start reading those names of people that were known and loved by the people that had gone on to be with the Lord. This year, if we were doing that in our church, so whose name would you put on the lily? Whose name would you put on that? And then you'd hear the music of their name right in public one more time and say, oh, thanks be to God. They are alive today. They're not dead. They're alive because Jesus Christ is alive. If, If I was putting a name on the lily today, there's no question in our family, is there loss? Bobby's name would be here. February 1st, he was shoveling the walk in, his heart stopped, and he was such a young man with a young family, my brother in law, a precious Christian man. 
Yeah, his name would be on that lily today. And we would be remembering that he's not dead. (laughs) He's still alive. When I went to his funeral and participated in his funeral, we got in the car. It was my responsibility to kind of line up those songs that you use in a prelude. And I found songs about the resurrection and songs that I knew that Bobby loved, and I put them on that playlist. And then I got in my car, and we drove that route, really a sacred route, back to South Bend where Lois' family lives and where my grandma and grandpa lived for many years. It's a route we'd taken so many times, but it was just so different. It's like the whole drive was, we thought about Bobby, we laughed about Bobby, we talked about Bobby. And I played this song by Chris Tomlin, I will rise, I will rise. And it starts out when my heart and flesh will fail. This week in the wonderful providence of God, I got a text from Tom Counts. So he's going to sing that song for us right now. This is how Paul ended that chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass this, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your life matters. Your work is not in vain in the Lord. Think about this for a minute. I have some questions for you. Do you long for a meaningful life? Would you like to be free of guilt and shame and sin? Would you like to have the security that you know you're right with God? Think about those things. Connect with us. Because we'd like to sit down and have like an extended conversation with you. Grab a card in the pew there. Before you go, just write your name and your contact information on the card. We'll just sit down and have an unhurried conversation with you. Or see somebody after the service. Or send us an email. Or call the church office. Or I love you so much that you can have my personal cell phone number. It's not hard to find. It's on my website for all the smart people. You can go on my website, now the cat's out of the bag, and you get my personal cell phone number. And you can text me or call me. And if you're a girl and wouldn't be comfortable to meet one-on-one, we'll get somebody else involved and, or, or a nice lady to talk with you. If you're a guy, want to grab some coffee or breakfast. Wouldn't it be good for us to talk about this? You probably have some questions. But some of you don't. Some of you are ready. You're ready to... Say, I believe. I, I do, I believe. And I just think Easter Sunday would be an awesome time to start believing, don't you? And when I talk with people, some people get saved. They, they come to be followers of Jesus in a, in a service, right in the service. Uh, we got a guy here. I won't point him out to embarrass him. But, you know, I, bet I was meeting with him, meeting with him, meeting with him. And then, I, and then he said, I'm, a, I'm in. I'm like, how did that happen? Like, did I miss that? Was I there? He goes, yeah, you were kind of there. It was in church. I was in the balcony. I was singing. I want you to stand up, and we're going to sing a song for you to believe on, all right? And to, 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 for you to believe during, right? You don't believe on a song. You believe in Jesus. 
And some of you here are going to express your heart and say, yeah, this is just what I've always believed. This is what I believe. And some of you are maybe going to believe for the very first time. And please, while you sing, just worship the Lord here, and God bless each of you.